The following program is for informational purposes only. Do not make any investment without speaking to a licensed financial advisor. It's time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions, because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Hello, my friends. How are you? Welcome to today's edition of the financial physician for December 10th, 2023, as we meander down to the end of 2023. The fastest year in my life. I don't know what's going on with time, but it seems to be speeding up. Hopefully, you're doing great. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen to our weekly podcast where we uh, talk money markets and politics and anything that affects your life. So let's start off today's program talking about uh, the way most investors invest, the vehicles that they use. They use mutual funds. They use ETFs, which is exchange-traded funds, and retail investors use index funds. So I want to explain to you what each of these things are, how they work, the pros and cons, and uh, what's best for you. So let's start off talking about mutual funds. Now, when I started in the business, in the financial services business in 1983, I started my career at a mutual fund company called First Investors. They've been around since 1933. And when I, I graduated from college with a microbiology degree, I originally wanted to be a dentist. And I'm certainly not a dentist right now. Uh, and I certainly don't use my microbiology degree, although I did use it during COVID. Uh, but, but for the most part, I had no training. I didn't know what happened on Wall Street. I didn't know the difference between the stock and the bond. So I uh, was working in the supermarket with a college degree in microbiology, stock and shelves on the midnight shift. And uh, I was saying, boy, I spent four years in college for this. Uh, and I went and took the New York Times and I was looking through the help wanted ads. Uh, and there was an ad said college graduate management trainee investment firm. I said, all right, you know, let me give them a call and see what they're looking for. And it was about selling mutual funds. Now, I had no idea what a mutual fund was, uh, but they offered me an interview to come in. Uh, they would train me fully and get me licensed, and uh, I was on the fence. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, talked me into going. My father-in-law worked for Goldman Sachs. He lived on the water. He had a nice boat. Uh, maybe I should get into the investment business. So I took out my <laughs> my old prom suit. <laughs> it was pretty ugly. Uh, I got on the bus and went to New York City, and I went about an hour early. And in the Port Authority, I went into uh, Barnes & Noble, grabbed a book on investments, read about mutual funds, became an expert in an hour, aced the interview. They hired me on the spot. 
And before I knew it, I had a Series 6 mutual fund license and I was out selling mutual funds to people. So that's my experience in mutual funds. I started there and I've used mutual funds in my financial planning practice uh, since the start. So let's talk about what a mutual fund is. A mutual fund is a pool of money that invests in a diversified basket of securities. So say it's a growth fund. Whenever you hear the word growth, I'm going to talk about the different categories of funds. But when you hear the word growth or you hear the word equity, that means it owns stocks. It's in the stock market. And the people who run the fund will buy maybe 100, maybe 150 different companies. Uh, the stock of those companies, and that will be part of the mutual fund. Now, you'll own shares of the mutual fund. Maybe an institution has a million dollars worth. Somebody else here has $2,000 worth. Uh, they keep issuing shares as people want them. Now, when you buy a mutual fund, you're buying diversification. And what is diversification? Well, uh, you could buy one stock. You could take your 10000 and buy one stock, but you're at risk now that that one company, all your money is tied up in the fortune of that one company. If it does really well, say you picked Apple when it was $10, well, you made a lot of money. But what if you picked Lucent uh, and many other companies that go to zero? So you have specific company risk when you buy individual securities. When you buy a mutual fund, you have diversification because the mutual fund has hundreds of securities in it. So if one company doesn't play out, well, you won't really even notice it because it's one of 200. Number two, you have professional management in most mutual funds, meaning that experts run the fund. They decide what companies to buy and what companies to sell. They're always scouring financial reports and uh, looking at what has the best potential. If a company's not doing well, they're going to sell it. They're not going to write it down. So that's the second benefit of a mutual fund. First, diversification. Second, professional management. So here's a way of looking at diversification. Suppose you uh, bought a big jar of jelly beans. Right? You took, uh, and it cost you $1,000, just for argument's sake. Well, in there, you have 200 jelly beans of all different flavors. Now, if you went and take the $10,000 and buy just one jelly bean, well, what if that jelly bean goes bad? Well, you're out at that point. If one jelly bean goes bad in the whole bunch of 200, you hardly notice it. Not a great analogy, but an analogy nonetheless. So it's diversification is having many instead of having one. Another advantage of mutual funds, there is a tremendous variety of funds. Let's talk about the different types. Uh, typically, when most people think mutual funds, they think the stock market. And that's only a part of it, but let's talk the stock market. Now, as I said before, that... Uh, uh, funds could be called growth funds, they could be called equity funds, they could be called international funds, they could be uh, called capital appreciation funds. Uh, all of these names are the same thing for stock market. And many investors don't know the difference between these names because they could have uh, different kinds of risks. A capital appreciation fund is more risky than a uh, growth fund. A growth fund will tend to have more blue chip type of stocks in it. A capital appreciation fund may have a lot of technology, smaller companies. Now, the theory is more risk, more reward, that if you go for a capital appreciation fund in a good market, you would have a better return than, say, a blue chip growth fund. Now, there's other funds out there that have stocks in it, too. A balanced fund. What does that one mean? Well, it means that it has some stocks and it has some bonds. 
a mixture of the two. Then you could have um, bond funds that invest in maybe treasury bonds. So that portfolio will have 100 treasury bonds in it. Uh, You could buy a tax-free municipal bond fund, which will only own tax-free municipal bonds. You could have a mutual fund that will only own corporate bonds. And then you go even deeper, then there's different degrees of risk in the bond market. High-yield bond funds, also known as junk bond funds, have much higher interest rates, much higher yield, but more risk because these are, are, are companies that aren't, aren't that stable. Uh, or you could invest in a, uh, an investment-grade bond fund. These are, these are bigger companies that have very high ratings but offer lower interest rates. You could invest in mutual funds that just buy international stocks. Say you want to diversify. You just don't want to be in the United States economy. You want to be in the world economy. Well, you could buy a mutual fund that invests in stocks all around the world. So it goes on and on. You can even go to specific sectors. There's mutual funds that only invest in gold bullion. There's mutual funds that only invest in energy companies. So if you think oil prices are going to go up and you want to take advantage of that, well, you could buy a mutual fund that only buys companies involved in oil exploration, oil production, oil sales, equipment for that industry. Uh, We have endless wars right now. Uh, You did really well if you had a a mutual fund that only bought defense contractors or defense stocks in the United States. You know, a, a mutual fund that only owns Lockheed Martin and Boeing and those kind of stocks. So mutual funds give you a huge variety. Uh, And one thing about mutual funds, you could put anything you wanted in. Now, some mutual funds have minimums. Maybe the minimum's $3,000 to invest in that fund. Others have very low minimums. Some don't even have any. And with a mutual fund, you could add to it any time. You could buy more shares anytime you want. Or you could set up uh, a monthly investment program where every month a certain amount of of dollars comes out of your checking account, is sent to the mutual fund company, and they buy shares. Now, when I started in the business of first investors, I used to sell those programs. They used to be called contractual plans. And you could pick $100 a month was a typical plan we'd we'd provide people at that point. And they would put $100 a month in every single month. And uh, at the end of 15 years, they would have put $18,000 in and... uh, more often than not, it would be worth over 100 So that's a good way to invest. And that's a really good way to invest if you don't have a lot of money or you're just starting out in life and you want to start building up wealth, systematic investing. Now, the problem is a lot of people don't follow through with it. I can't tell you how many plans I set up that all of a sudden they stop putting the money in. Uh, and that's just human nature. That's why it's good to set up an automatic program with your bank that you automatically send money there. And what's uh, another advantage of uh, incremental investing? It's something called dollar cost averaging. What does that mean? It just means that every month you're buying shares regardless of what the market is doing. You don't care what the market's doing when you're accumulating shares. All you care is that you're regularly investing. When the market's going down, that's actually a good thing because you're buying more shares. You're buying low. That's how you make money in the market, right? You buy low, you sell high, right? When the markets are doing well, you're going to buy less. 
But the thing is, you're averaging your cost, and that's where the word dollar cost averaging comes from. It's a great way to invest, whether you're investing in gold or you're investing in the stock market or you're investing uh, in the bond market. You know, dollar cost averaging over the long term works really well. Uh, and uh, they don't offer contractual plans anymore, but but most uh, mutual fund companies allow for automatic uh, purchase plans. Also, uh, there's different ways that mutual funds are priced, and it depends on whether or not you're dealing with an advisor or not. There are, well, there used to be three, there used to be four different classes of funds. Class A shares. Uh, would have a built-in commission. So if the shares were worth uh, the net asset value, by the way, what is the net asset value? The net asset value is when you take the value of all the securities in a mutual fund and you divide it by the outstanding shares in that fund and it tells you what each share is worth. And every day the markets are open, the, the net asset value of all the mutual funds go up or down based on how that portfolio did or how the general market did. Now, I don't care what your portfolio is. If the market dropped, you know, 3% today because it's crashing, uh, your fund's going down. Now, you may not go down as much as another fund. That's a little more risky, but you're still going to go down. So it follows the market in general, but the active management makes some funds better than others and make some perform better than others. So if you buy a mutual fund and the net asset value is $10 a share, if there's a 5% commission or in the industry it's known as load, uh, then you will pay ten fifty for your shares. If you want to sell them the next day, you're only going to get 10 for them. So you're already in the whole 5%. And that money goes to the advisor. And for many years, that's what I provided our clients with because that was the only option. I mean, I've been doing this 40 years now. So, uh, you know, times have changed since then. Then there was the advent of what were called B-shares. What are B-shares? B-shares, you buy the shares at net asset value. There is no commission that comes out in the beginning. Now, the advisor still makes a commission. It's paid by the mutual fund company. But if you take your money out over a certain period of time, very similar to annuities, you will have a surrender fee. Because if the mutual fund company is paying 5% to the advisor, and a year later you take your money out, well, they're going to lose money, and financial institutions do not lose money. So they'll get it out of you. And that surrender fee usually goes down 1% a year or whatever, over five years or six years. Uh, and then you could sell it without any surrender fee. Now, those funds have gone away for the most part because they were very, very costly to investors. Uh, why were they costly? Because they charged a marketing fee in addition to a management fee. All mutual funds charge a fee to the fund to manage it. you got to pay portfolio managers and servicers, and uh, you have statements going out, tax statements. So the mutual fund has to charge, and they have to have a profit, too, in it. But on top of that, they would charge what was called the 12B1 fee, which is a cost for marketing the fund, which could be another 50 uh, uh, basis points or half a percent. Uh, and B shares became very, very costly, and... Um, Pretty much the SEC has done away with them. Then you have C-shares. C-shares you pay like 1% a year. There's no surrender fee to get out. There's no upfront fee, but you're paying 1% a year. Now, if you hold that fund 15 years, you're going to pay 15% for that fund. Whereas if you would have bought A-shares in the beginning, you'd pay 5% once, and that would be it. Then you'd just be paying the management fee going forward. 
Then you have no-load funds. These are the vanguards of the world, the fidelity investments of the world. These funds have no cost to buy and no cost to sell and no advisor, unless they're a fee-based advisor. But if you buy a no-load fund from Fidelity or from Vanguard, all the cost is is the management fee that the fund pays to have it uh, gets paid to, to run it and manage it. And no-load funds are the cheapest way to invest, but you have to know what you're doing. I mean, many people need a financial advisor. Hopefully that's the case. I'm a financial advisor for 40 years. Uh, that's how I've fed my family. Um, and we like to think there was a value added by having an advisor. Um, and the one thing about an advisor, uh, they prevent you from doing the wrong thing. You know, many uh, average investors that manage their own money, they become very emotional. The market goes down a few days in a row. They get scared. They sell. Uh, and they don't uh, keep uh, their eye on the long-term goals that they have. And a, a financial advisor prevents you from doing that, prevent you from hurting themselves. So if you're going to deal with a financial advisor that gets paid commissions, you're going to deal with a class A share with an upfront commission or a C share where you're paying fees each and every year. Now, if you're dealing with a fee-based advisor or a money manager that charges you annual management fees, that's the way I operate, we could use no-load funds. Right, Because we don't need to make a commission on the fund. We're making a fee in lieu of a commission. So we could use the low-cost, no-load funds and ETFs, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Now, one thing about mutual funds, uh, we're talking about open-ended mutual funds, the classic mutual fund uh, that's out there. You can't trade during the day. I don't care when you put the sell order in to come out of the fund. Uh, you're going to get the end-of-the-day pricing. So everybody gets the same price, net asset value of an open-end mutual fund, no matter when you put the sell order in. And that's where ETFs differ, and I'm going to explain that in a second. So don't think that, hey, you know, the market's uh, up this morning, so if I sell it now and it goes down this afternoon, uh, I'll lock in a higher price than somebody who sells it later in the afternoon. No, that's not the case. And if you have a really bad market, um, some news comes out, a 9-11 or something like that, it doesn't matter when you sell it. You're going to take your, your daily hit that day. And that's one of the, the drawbacks about open-end funds. And that's one of the cons. Uh, let's look at some of the cons. The funds have minimums, some of them I said before. And if you're a small investor and you want to put $500 in a specific fund, you may not be able to do so because of the minimum. Another thing about mutual funds, they could be very tax inefficient. What do I mean by that? If you buy a fund in December, early December, chances are the fund is going to issue a capital gain distribution sometime in December. And that capital gains distribution is taxable. And the capital gains distribution is the net profits that the fund has realized over the course of the year by selling securities. Now, if you just got into the fund and it pays a 10% capital gain distribution, you're paying tax on 10% that you did not earn. And that's a big drawback to the fund. That's why you got to be very careful when you're investing in late November or December. You may create a taxable event for yourself. And it's, it's not like, hey, well, Lou, doesn't that make sense? I'll put the money in before the 10% dividend comes in. Oh, the 10% capital gains distribution comes in. <clears throat> Won't I make 10% on my money? Absolutely not. Because what happens is when that distribution is paid out, 
the shares drop by that amount. So if it's $10 a share and you pay $10 a share for it and they pay you a dollar capital gain distribution, those shares are going to drop to $9. So the value of your account is exactly the same as it was, except now you have a 10% taxable distribution that you have to deal with on your tax return. All right. Very big drawback um, to uh, to open end mutual funds. And this is really specific to stock funds. Because stock funds tend to have huge capital gains, especially in a year that had a great return like 2023. There'll be a lot of capital gains distributions in December. So you don't want to go out and buy a, a, an equity fund or a growth fund, you know, in early December or, or, or late November only to get hit with a tax distribution. Now, let's talk about exchange traded funds or ETFs. These are also mutual funds. They're a diversified portfolio. And they trade during the day like stocks. So you could buy it at a different prices during the day, and you could sell it under different prices during the day. And that's an advantage to you if you're a trader. Now, if you're a long-term investor and you're putting together a portfolio for retirement, this is not for you. Because you don't need that liquidity. You don't need to trade during the day. Now, if you're a speculator like me, I'm a day trader. I'll buy an ETF in the morning and sell it after lunch if I made a good profit in short term or I'm experiencing a loss. I can get out very, very quickly. That's another advantage. Another advantage of, um, uh, uh, of ETFs is huge variety and laser, laser beam investing. What do I mean by that? Say you want to buy uh, an ETF that only has gold miners in it. There's an ETF, the symbol is GDX, trades just like a stock on a New York Stock Exchange, has uh, some of the biggest mining companies, gold mining companies uh, in the world, uh, but it's only about eight or nine companies. So you don't have the same diversification you would have in, say, a diversified growth fund, but you're investing in one sector of the economy. You think gold's going to go up, well, the gold mining stocks are going to go up, and you want to be in that sector, and you're not investing in the stock market in general, an ETF that invests in gold miners is a good thing to have. Say you want to invest in um, defense stocks. Well, you could buy an ETF that has 10 of the biggest defense stocks in the country. Uh, and this is true of any industry. Uh, medical device manufacturers that make pacemakers and defibrillators and uh, EKG machines. If you think that's a good industry to be in at this time, you could buy an ETF and invest in that. You could buy an ETF that holds just gold bullion or silver bullion. You could buy an ETF that only holds Swiss francs. So say you think the dollar is going to go down against the Swiss franc. You could buy the, the Swiss franc ETF. FXF. That's the symbol. FX as foreign exchange and F is in franc. FXY is a Japanese yen. FXE is the euro, you know, and FXC is a Canadian dollar. So here's a way of investing in other currencies. Say you think the dollar is going to go down a lot. There's de-dollarization going on around the world. The petrodollar is dying and you don't want to have all your money in dollars. You could buy an ETF and go into other currencies. Kind of neat. And I trade them all the time. So ETF gives you that laser beam focus on a certain sector or a certain industry or a certain commodity. 
and it's very easy to do. It's also generally more tax efficient because it doesn't distribute capital gains. You only have capital gains when you sell the shares. That's a big deal because if you hold the shares long term, you don't have to deal with taxable events. Now, if the ETF pays dividends, and many of them do, especially in the bond market, then you're going to pay tax on the dividends. But it's the big capital gains distributions that really hurt uh, tax-wise. And again, as I said before, you have intraday pricing, so you could watch the market. So say... Say the market's just not trading good. The news is bad out there and, you know, I'm waiting for another shoe to drop and I really don't want to wait to the end of the day and get pricing. If I have an ETF, I could say, you know what, I'm out of here this morning. And if the market crashes this afternoon, uh, I'm not affected by it because I sold this morning. I already got my price. And that's another advantage of it. Now, what are some of the cons? Um, You can't systematically invest in an ETF. You can't do it. It's just impossible to do. And that doesn't stop you from going into your Ameritrade account. Well, Ameritrade now is Schwab uh, or your Fidelity account or whatever. And, you know, buying regularly, you could do that. But you can't do it automatically. And in some ETFs, there could be liquidity issues. There's a lot of ETFs out there that don't have a lot of shares outstanding. So if you want to sell, you you had a lot of money in it and you wanted to sell it, you may push the price down against yourself. Another thing about ETFs, that uh, don't happen with regular mutual funds is sometimes the price per share, the net asset value of the ETF could be less than the actual net asset value of that ETF. It could be trading at a discount. It also could be trading at a premium to what it's worth just based on supply and demand for the shares. So uh, that's one thing you have to be aware of, too. Uh, you may not get full value for that portfolio if it's trading at a discount. And we see that a lot in certain ETFs, especially ones that don't have a whole lot of shares outstanding. So that's ETFs, mutual funds. They're basically the same. They're, they're, they're diversified mixture of investments. They have different pricing structures. An ETF, you're going to pay a commission like you're buying the stock. Unless you're on a commission-free platform like Robinhood or, or Schwab or something like that, or Fidelity. They may have fees, a $25 fee to buy or sell them. Um, and another thing that's a negative of a con, the fact that you can trade them uh, means that you probably will. Uh, and that's uh, speculating. Now you're not investing for the long term. Now you now you get a little nervous during the day. You hear the market's down 200, 300 points. And you say, well, maybe I should sell my ETF because it may go down lower. And that's the thing. You're looking on your, you're looking on your, your iPhone and you're looking at the price of the ETF trading. And you say, geez, it's been going down. Maybe I should sell it. And you're always going to do the wrong thing. You're going to sell it to low. You're going to buy it to high. Uh, trust me on that. I'm a professional and I tend to do that sometimes because of emotions. And you certainly going to do it if you're not a professional. Now, lastly, what I want to talk about is index funds. Index funds are mutual funds too, but they're passively managed. What does that mean? It means the portfolio doesn't change. Or when it does change, it changes very infrequently. Whereas a regular mutual fund, say a growth fund, they'll buy and sell every day different stocks in the portfolio. But um, an ETF, too, for the most part, is pretty static. They don't do a whole lot of trading because, I mentioned before, the gold ETF. Well, the 10 biggest gold miners are the 10 biggest gold miners. That doesn't usually change. Same is true with a defense ETF. Um, 
the top 10 defense contractors are still Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon. You know, that's not going to change. Those are relatively passive funds. And an index fund is trying to mimic the market. You're not trying to beat the market in an index fund. A managed fund is trying to beat the market. Many of them are not successful in doing it. Many of them underperform the market. But if you just want to be the market, you don't want to beat the market, you want to be the market, index funds are good. You could buy a fund that mimics the S&P 500. It basically owns on a weighted basis every stock in the S&P 500. So if you hear the S&P 500 is up 2% today, your shares should be up uh, pretty close to 2%. So you mimic the market. And the good thing about index funds is they're, they're low costs. Um, they're mostly stock funds. Uh, Vanguard pioneered the, the first S&P 500 fund. You could still buy it. Uh, but you're not never going to beat the, beat the market. You're going to be exactly what the market is minus the cost to run the fund. So if the S&P 500 is down 15% this year, you're going to be down 15% plus a little bit more due to management fees. If the S&P 500 is up 15%, your mutual fund shares or your return will be 1500 as well. Will be up 15% as well, I should say. And there's all kinds of indexes out there. There's indexes for very uh, speculative small companies, the Russell 2000, there's, in, there's ETFs that mimic uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, there's ETFs that uh, mimic um, NASDAQ. There's also ETFs that are leveraged. Um, leverage, what do I mean, Lou? Well, they're leveraged to the market through futures contracts. So say the S&P 500 goes up 5% and it's leveraged 2 to 1. Well, you're going to go up 10%. Well, that's good, isn't it? I'm going to do twice as good as the market does. But it's a double-edged sword. What if the market goes down 10%? You're going to go down 20%. Uh, and some of the examples that I had are uh, the S&P 500. You can go two times down. Uh, if the, you, you could bet against the market. You could buy ETFs that short the market. And I've made a lot of money over the years uh, shorting the market using leveraged bearish ETFs. Sometimes they're two times, three times, even four times what the market does. So if I buy, um, say I want to short the NASDAQ, it's gone up a lot, which it has the last few months, and I think it's overvalued, and I think the, uh, the, the NASDAQ's going to go down. Well, I could buy SQQQ, S-Q-Q-Q, that's the symbol. And what this fund does, it is leverage to the downside. So if, um, if the NASDAQ drops 10%, these shares will go up 20%. Pretty nice making money when the market goes down. And you know what? The market goes down faster and harder than the market goes up because fear is a more powerful emotion than greed. Uh, people get scared and they sell, sell, sell. Remember the trading places? Mortimer, get in there. Go in there and sell, sell, sell. That's what panic does. And you could profit by down markets or you could hedge other positions that you have. I own gold. Uh, sometimes when I think the gold market has peaked out and is due for a correction, I don't, I'm not going to take my gold coins and go to a dealer and sell them. What I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to buy I'm going to short or buy an ETF that short gold, and I'll hedge my gold position. Now, I'm getting a little in the weeds here now, but uh, and I don't want to get too deep in it. But there is ETFs that you could buy 
that are bearish ETFs where you can make money in the market when the market goes down. So you got to understand how mutual funds work, whether they're an exchange-traded fund, whether they're a traditional mutual fund, whether they're an index fund. These are the vehicles that Americans use and money managers use for the most part for making investments for themselves and from their clients. And you need to know if you're going to manage your own money, you need to know how these different funds work. And there's lots of information on the internet, lots of YouTube videos. And now you'll have this interview on my Rumble channel. And by the way, I do have a Rumble channel. I uh, videotape every one of the openings to the show, which is usually a financial topic. And it's on my Rumble channel. It's also on my blog uh, at thefinancialphysician.com. So if you hear a subject on this program, a financial subject that we open up the show with, and you want to hear it again, or in this case, see it again, uh, then just go to uh, either thefinancialphysician.com and go back to find it. Or better yet, just look up me, Louis Cotigna, or The Financial Physician, the Rumble channel, and all our videos are there on all the topics that we've talked about uh, going back into time. Now, I've only had the Rumble channel for a couple of years, so we're growing it, but it will be a great encyclopedia uh, for you to uh, go there and learn about personal finance. All right, let's take a quick break. My name's Lou Skatigna. You're listening to The Financial Physician. Don't go away. Are you currently retired or planning to retire in the next five years? Hey, Lou Skatigna here, certified financial planner, personal finance author, president of AFM Investments. Why not join me for a comprehensive financial review at my downtown Tom's River office? Banks are paying virtually nothing, and the stock market has become a risky casino. But there are ways to achieve reasonable returns without taking on big risks. Let me show you how. During our meeting, I will determine your net worth, find ways to maximize your income, and minimize your taxes. I'll review your estate plan and discuss strategies to protect your estate from nursing home costs. Managing your finances is more complicated than ever, but you don't have to go it alone. So make your no-obligation appointment today by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Registered advisory services through Fortitude Advisory Group. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Love your emails at lou at thefinancialphysician.com. You have something I could help you with, comment on the program, something you want me to cover, just send me an email at lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I answer each and every email. If I don't, I just didn't see it or I went into spam or whatever. Just send it again and have an interesting subject line that'll get my eye because we get so much junk these days. Really do love your emails. Most of them are very, 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 very nice and and, and some of them are very funny. And I I really do appreciate uh, getting feedback from my listeners. That's the thing about a podcast. We don't take phone calls here like a radio show. uh, uh, So we don't interact with our listeners I don't know if you like the show, if you didn't like this show, uh, if you want the show to be shorter, um, do you want me to cover more finance and less politics or more politics and less finance? It's only through the feedback from you 
that I will make the show the way you want it. Uh, whoever's most vocal out there. I think we have a nice balance between money, markets, politics. Uh, but if the listeners don't think so, then we'll adjust it. I'm here to give you what you want each and every week here on The Financial Physician. So let me ask you a question. What is God's money? Is it a dollar bill that's backed by nothing? Is it a euro? Is it a shekel? Is it a yen? No, it's none of these things. These are man-made money. These are fiat currencies. These are paper backed by nothing but the full faith and credit of a government. But if we look back in biblical history, from the gold and silver that was in Solomon's temple to people who've come back from near-death experiences saying that heaven's streets are paved with gold, and gold is everywhere. You know there's more than 700 references to gold and silver in the Bible. It's one of the most referred to things in the Bible itself. And when we examine scripture, um, we see uh, three characteristics about gold and silver that come up. That it uh, has a divine origin. It always has intrinsic value. And it is money. It has a monetary quality. And there's many quotes in the Bible on this. And why do we people say it, it's God's money? Because God says so in the Bible, in, in, in the Old Testament, in Haggai 2, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. So if you believe in biblical scripture, there it is right there. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord. So it is God's money. And God and silver are, are products of God. They're not a creation of man like, like, like fiat currencies are in the dollar bill. And God designed them to be uh, beautiful, intrinsically valuable as a medium of exchange. Gold doesn't corrode or tarnish. You know, gold can be hammered so thin that a single ounce can uh, spread over 100 square feet. That's how malleable it is. Now, silver, silver is the best conductor of heat of any metal and electricity. And it reflects light better than any other precious metal. And if it's refined right, it, it looks like a mirror. That's how shiny it is and that's how reflective it is. And in ancient times, it would be strange to refer to money as something besides gold and silver. As a matter of fact, uh, I believe in the, in, in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew language, there's no word for money. It's always considered to be silver and gold. And in the Bible, every passage that refers to uh, quote-unquote money is actually a unit of weight uh, of silver or gold or another metal. Now, silver was used for day-to-day -day purchases. That was like the currency. What did Judas get paid to betray Jesus? 30 ounces of silver, right? That was money in that, that, that time. And at that time, gold was considered to be 20 times more valuable than silver. So the gold to silver ratio, which we'll talk about as we go on here, 
uh, talking about gold and silver, what it is, why you want it, how to purchase it, different ways of purchasing it. I'm going to go over all that. But gold and silver in the Bible synonymous with money. In Hebrew, there's no word for money. You can't find it. So uh, even when um, we were on the gold standard, the United States, an ounce of silver was worth a, a dollar and an ounce of gold was worth about 20. So a 20 to 1 silver to gold ratio. Today, which we'll go into it a little bit more later on, it's over 80, right? Gold is, is 80 times more valuable than silver right now. And I think that's what makes silver so inexpensive compared to gold. Now, the reason I'm bringing up the subject now, hey, gold has hit a record high this past week, over 2,100. It's come back a little bit since then. It's 2,050, something like that, which is always healthy. You don't want to see a market go straight up without correct correction. But I think it's going a lot higher, and a lot of people are talking about gold these days because it's broken out. Now, the one thing we'll, we'll talk about later is the manipulation in that market. It would be a lot higher if that wasn't happening. But going back to the biblical um, history of gold and silver, gold and silver were used as money not only in Jewish culture but throughout all cultures around the world. Regardless of where you lived on earth, Gold and silver was available. It's not just the one place. And no matter where you go around the world, back in ancient times, gold and silver were considered money and wealth. And uh, everybody's had a chance to, to utilize it. Now, some countries have more gold and silver than others underground. And they're big mining countries like South Africa, for one. Now, in the last century, um, most of the world has removed gold and silver um, uh, from its monetary role. Its historic monetary role is money. And by ignoring silver and gold and the silver and gold standard, uh, what we've seen is central banks create large economic imbalances, inflation, the printing of money, uh, undisciplined spending. Every day, Currencies fluctuate in value against each other. And many times, you know, uh, currencies are manipulated. You know, China is always accused of manipulating their currency lower, so their products are cheaper than ours. And uh, and the fact that we use fiat currencies now and uh, that central banks have the power of the printing press uh, has caused inflation. It's uh, enriched the wealthy who own real estate and financial assets and gold and, and all that. And the middle class and the poor, you know, have been robbed of their savings. And it's amazing how many people, you know, don't own gold or silver as part of their life. And, and I think gold, God created gold and silver um, to stabilize and, and be the backbone of, of economic growth. That's the way it always was. And uh, I think that when God created the world and he, he set a fixed amount of gold and silver in the earth, you can't create gold or silver. It's just what's there, right? It just needs to be found and, and dug up and mined and refined. But there's only a finite number of ounces of silver and gold in the earth. 
And uh, the reason why there's a, a fixed amount is so we don't have runaway inflation or deflation. So God is the creator of gold and silver. It's God's money. And uh, I think a lot of people have forgotten that. And I don't mean to go all biblical on you, but it, it's, it's interesting. And when I say to people, you know, in my conference room, I pull out a five-ounce bar of silver and I show it to people to tell them what real money is, what God's money is. So enough of the biblical reasons to own gold. Let's talk about why else you should. Uh, we've had a lot of volatility in the stock market, the bond markets the last couple of years. Well, uh, gold tends to be the opposite of that. It tends to do well when the stock market's doing poorly. Not all the time. If the stock market crashes, you may see all assets go down temporarily. But usually, uh, historically, precious metals have an inverse relationship to the stock market. And typically, when stocks are doing well, gold and silver don't do too good. Uh, but when uh, they're doing bad, or you have inflation, or you have financial collapse, or um, uh, uncertainty, that's one of the reasons why gold and silver, or not silver as much, but gold hit a record high, is because of uncertainty about the war in the Middle East, the, the war in Ukraine, the inst unstable geopolitical issues that we have, Taiwan and China. And one of the strongest uh, aspects of, of bullion, gold bullion, and we'll talk about what bullion is. No, it's not chicken soup. Uh, is that it is um, historically has staying power. It's, it's, it's always been around for at least 3,000 years. And, uh, and it will continue. It's always kept pace with inflation. It can't be printed or created. If you hold physical gold, it's no you don't have any counterparty risks. It's in your hand. It's universal money. You could you could sell it in any currency. Gold is in demand all around the world. And it's uh, something that should be a part of your diversified assets. Do you know um, gold is the second best performing asset? since 2000. And the best is not the stock market. You know, I had this argument with somebody about, um, oh no, gold hasn't outperformed the stock market since 2000. It has. Significantly, actually. And uh, I think it will continue to do so. And, you know, you want to talk about precious metals and how long, you know, we, we can go back to the Roman days and know that gold, you know, and silver was part of, of, of coinage at that time. But it goes back even further than that. Some say that silver has been money for 6,000 years. And the thing is, when you look at fiat currencies, currencies that have no backing, historically, they always go to zero. They never survive. But here you have a five-year history of gold surviving and thriving and preserving wealth. And that's what they say. They say silver is money for currency for transactions and gold is a store of wealth. And boy, I tell you, I feel more comfortable having uh, money in, in gold and silver than I would in a bank account in dollars. 
Now, if you look at um, the beginning of the Federal Reserve, which was 1913, and let's say that uh, the dollar was worth $100. Let's, let's use $100 as a figure. By the Wall Street crash, which is 1929, so what are we talking about? We're talking about 13 years? No, 16 years. 16 years later, that $100 purchasing power now is down to 75 In just 16 years. And by the time we get to uh, the oil crisis in 1973, we're at about $25. And today we're about three cents. I should say $3. Three cents on the dollar if $100 is worth three now. Meanwhile, gold hasn't, that hasn't happened to gold. Gold's gone the other way. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to offset inflation. So how do you buy gold and silver? I get this question all the time. What's the ways to do it? Well, well, am I going to get ripped off? How do I not get ripped off? Well, the most, Im- most important way to buy gold in the, in the most advantageous way is physical bullion. So what is bullion? Bullion is just the weight of pure gold or pure silver. So if you go out and you buy a one ounce American Eagle gold coin, that is 99.99% pure gold, and its value is whatever the value of an ounce of gold is at the time. There's no value in the coin itself. There's no rarity of the coin itself. It is just bullion. You bought American Eagle gold coins for the gold content or the silver content if you're buying American Eagle silver coins. Same is true of Krugerrands or, uh, or Canadian Maple Leafs. You're buying it for the gold itself, not for the beauty of it, not for the rarity of it. You're buying it to own gold. Now, the thing is, let's talk coins. Coins, I think, is the best way to buy it because you could buy coins that are one-tenth of an ounce. Let's face it, a lot of people can't afford many gold coins if they're over $2,000 each. Uh, But maybe you could buy a tenth of an ounce coin that's $200. Or a half ounce coin. They come in different weights. Same is true of silver. But silver you could afford an ounce coin because silver is only $25 an ounce. And we'll talk about premiums a little later. But uh, you could buy gold bars. You could buy uh, different bars, rounds, things like that. But I'm a big believer in um, American Eagle gold coins. And I have no problem buying maple leaves from Canada or Krugerrands from South Africa or beautiful Philharmonics from Austria. Have you ever seen an Austrian Philharmonic coin? Beautiful. All these beautiful instruments on the back, violin and stuff like that. Beautiful. And they're nice to look at coins. You know, most Americans have never held in their hand a silver or gold coin. They don't know what it's like. And when I first bought silver, uh, first bought gold uh, and held it in my hand, uh, it felt great. I had a feeling like I never had before. Uh, it was pretty amazing um, because it's real money. And we all remember as being kids and watching cartoons and movies. Uh, uh, someone had a sack of gold coins, you know, and that was like so much wealth in it. And people would try to steal it and everything else. Uh, and you could 
even flashback to it's Christmas time, right? Silver and gold, silver and gold. I'm not a great singer. <laughs> you probably guess from now. So if you give me a $100 bill in one hand and you give me four one-ounce Silver Eagle coins in the other, I'm much more excited with the beautiful silver coins. You know, silver coins are bigger than gold coins. Um, substantially bigger. Uh, and that's because of the weight of silver and gold. Uh, gold is much heavier than silver. And that's why the, the, the silver one-ounce coins are much bigger than the gold coins. I got an email from a listener asking me that. How come? Well, it's different weights. That's why. So gold coins is always my favorite way of buying um, precious metals. Why? It's in your hand. You have it. It's not a no counterparty risk to it. You could sell it at any time. That's the one thing people say, well, is it hard to sell them? No. Just as easy to sell them as it is to buy them. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, um, one of the places I I recommend avoiding unless you're very uh, expert at it is numismatic coins. Numismatic coins are rare coins or collectible coins. All right. But you have to know what you're doing because the value of that coin is not only the metal that's in it, the bullion value, but also the numismatic value, the rarity of it. And you have to understand what is a 19, you know, 12 Gordon silver dollar worth. Uh, it's not just the, the price of silver. It's, it, it, there's other things that go into it. And another problem with that is that the spreads between buy price and sell price are very big. And you can lose a lot of money with rare coins if you don't know what you're doing. So I say stay away from it. So if, if you go to a, a bullion dealer or a coin dealer and they try to push on you some rare coins instead of American Eagles, tell them, no, you don't want it. You just want bullion. I want an ounce of gold, period. And that's the easiest, smartest way to do it. All right. So what about other products besides coins and bullion? Well, you have what's called paper gold or stocks. And, and these are ETFs. Uh, we talked about ETFs earlier in the program, exchange-traded funds. Well, the big gold ETF is GLD. That's the symbol. GLD trades on the New York Stock Exchange. The big silver ETF is SLB. Trades on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and mirrors the price of gold as far as up and down percentage movements. But I don't like them. I don't like them because they're not bullion funds. They're, they're, a lot of them have counterparty risk, meaning that they have futures contracts. So they don't actually own the gold or silver. They own the right to get it from a counterparty under certain parameters. Now, what happens if that counterparty just went bankrupt because they've been short the gold and silver, which is essentially what they are. They're short it. Uh, and they don't have the money to go buy, go in the market and buy it at inflated prices because it went up so much. Well, you know, the contract no longer is good because the counterparty to that contract cannot deliver. And I don't like that because just when you'll, you'll want precious metals because they're flying, uh, you'll see a lot of counterparty risk. So you want to look for an ETF or a trust that has actual bullion, actual bars kept in a vault somewhere that's audited. But the reason why people would use ETFs is that it's easier to buy and sell an ETF on an exchange than it is to go to a coin dealer and buy the coins and then store the coins. And then when you want to sell them, take the coins out of storage, uh, go to a dealer and sell them. You know, as I told you earlier, ETFs trade like stocks. So if you buy a, a gold ETF, 
It goes up 15, 20%. You just sell it in the market. You reap the capital gain and you move on. But I only like those for IRA accounts uh, where you, uh, you can't go out and actually buy the coins because you have a tax consequence to liquidate. Now, there is gold IRAs out there, precious metals IRAs. Uh, I still don't understand how they work, how you could have physical gold and silver in an IRA. Maybe I'm just ignorant, but um, uh, I prefer to use a gold trust if that's the case. Um, what about gold stocks? A lot of people say uh, you're better off in gold stocks in a bull market for gold and silver. Why? Because it doesn't cost miners any more money to dig a hole to take out gold or silver. And their product just goes up 10 bucks. Well, that goes right to the bottom line. So mining stocks are leveraged to the price of gold and silver. And typically or historically, if uh, gold goes up 10%, Miners go up 30%. So it's a three-to-one leverage. Now, leverage has two sides to it. So if gold goes down 10%, uh, the gold miners will probably go down 30%. Um, so you got to keep that in mind. That's a more speculative way of exposing yourself to the precious metals market. So where do you buy it? Well, uh, you have a number of options. Local coin dealers. A reputable, a reputable local coin dealer, you can walk into the shop, you can see the coins, you can hand over the cash and walk out with the bullion. And if you have a good relationship with your local coin dealer, it's worth everything. Uh, and I do. Um, he's very fair. His premiums are reasonable. He always has inventory most of the time. I could easily sell to him at any time. And we've, we've developed a relationship. I've sent them a lot of people, too. And you, you, long-term listeners to the radio show and the podcast know who I'm talking about. Ed from Ed's Elegant Coins in Wall Township. So if you're looking for an honest, reputable local dealer, good guy to talk to, and he'll explain a lot of things to you uh, and almost always has inventory. Ed's Elegant Coins um, in Wall Township, Route 35. Look it up. I don't have the phone number handy. Uh, Ed's Elegant Coins will come pop right up on you. Tell him I sent you and he'll take good care of you. So that's the best way to buy, you know, a local dealer. Uh, and, and the whole idea of, of, of buying precious metals is privacy. You don't want the government to know what you do. You know, they're trying to know everything that we do with digital currencies that are going to come out soon and everything else. I don't want the government to know what I have, what I'm doing. And that's the great thing about precious metals is that it's private. The government doesn't know you have it if you buy it properly. Now, if you go to one of the big online dealers, there's going to be a paper trail of that. And I don't want that. And, and so many dealers will let you just come in and pay cash as opposed to writing a check. Now you have no paper trail whatsoever. And being anonymous is one of the big things about um, owning gold and silver is that your wealth is anonymous. You know, there's an old, there's an old saying you want to have physical gold coins so you can bribe the border guards on your way out of the country that's deteriorating. And that's true. Uh, so the first place is your, your local gold dealer, uh, if you could find one. Um, uh, otherwise, you could go online. There's a lot of reputable companies out there to buy from. Uh, Kitgo is one, kitgo.com with a K. Um, uh, uh, Miles uh, Franklin, uh, Franklin, another big uh, dealer. Uh, you got JD Bullion. You got AppMex. There's so many places you could buy online, 
and they're all reputable. And you, they're all really good. You usually get delivery very quickly uh, during most markets. There's times when the, when the markets get tight and it's hard to get. You know, you could buy, a, you know, 100 silver coins, but you may not get delivery for two months. You'll lock in the price as long as you pay for it, but you may not get delivery for a while during tight markets. And we saw that during COVID uh, um, and even last year, there was, there was no, none in stock because so many people wanted precious metals. And that's still the case. People, uh, precious metal sales are, 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 are very big. And earlier in the year when we had the banking crisis, when banks were starting to fail, people were pulling their money out of the banks and buying gold and silver coins like crazy. I said, well, let's talk premiums. Um, what are premiums? Premium is the amount you pay for a coin or a bar over and above what's called the spot price. Now, you can go on any financial website and you will see the spot price of gold or the spot price of silver. That is not what you're going to pay for a one-ounce gold coin or a one-ounce silver coin. You're going to pay a premium. And that premium varies based on supply and demand. Now, typically, uh, the premium on silver is much higher as a percent than a premium in gold. Right now, with the gold price at... Um, Two thousand and fifty. You are uh, probably able to buy um, a gold coin at I don't know twenty one fifty. Let me take a quick look here. I'm looking at Kiko. It says buy from Kiko, and it'll tell you right here. So we're going to go to American Eagles, and uh, one ounce American Eagle gold coin is two thousand one hundred and thirty five dollars. Now the spot price is two thousand thirty one dollars. So it's roughly a $100 premium, roughly 5 6%. Now, if we take a look at silver coins, we take a look at American Eagle silver coins. Now, right now, silver is a little under $24 an ounce on the spot price. It's $23.89. What does it take to buy a one-ounce silver coin? It takes uh, one-ounce American silver eagle out of stock. Uh, so right now, Kiko is out of stock of one-ounce silver American eagles. Uh, but the price is, uh, let's see, um, $30.69. But that's if you buy 500 or more. If you buy one, it's $33.64. So we're talking about a $10 premium. You're talking about a 40% premium over and above the spot price. Well, that's what silver is selling for now, real silver. Not the futures contract, not the spot price, where silver is actually trading hands right now, it's about $32, $33. So am I losing money? Am I stupid to buy it? No, that's the market. Not what the, the COMEX says, because silver has been so manipulated on these exchanges, as has gold. Because central banks don't want silver and gold going up. That's the canary in the coal mine that shows what that, that they're destroying the economy. They're destroying the dollar. They're, just, they're creating inflation. And that people want out of the currency and they want to go into God's money, real money. Not fiat, paper, toilet paper money. You know who's a big believer in uh, gold and silver? Robert Kiyosaki, the author of the book, Rich Man, uh, Rich, Fa- uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Great book to read. It's been one of the top rated um, um, number one bestsellers for years. Number one business book ever sold. And he talks about his one father, his one stepfather was um, 
really good with money and and became rich in real estate and everything else, and how his other father, you know, squandered money, and so he he saw both ends of the spectrum. But anyway, he's out now. He has a podcast, and uh, he is adamant that people need to get out of dollars and into gold and silver. He pulls out a you know you know bunch of paper money out of his pocket and says, "This is toilet paper." And then he pulls out an ounce of gold or an ounce of silver, and he shows it, and he said, "This is money." Uh, and I agree with them 100%. So we're, be, be aware that there is a premium to sell. Now, uh, right now in a, in a good market, you also, if you sell it, uh, in the past you get the spot price minus a discount. Uh, but now many dealers, especially when, when stock is tight, will pay you a premium for your silver coins or gold coins. Not a big one. But if spot price is $24, um, on, on a silver, uh, the spot market for an ounce of silver, they may pay you uh, 25 maybe even higher, because they're selling it at 33 But if they don't have any product, they can't sell anything. So they're willing to pay you 25 to sell it at 31 32 33 That's good business. But it all depends on when you sell and what the supply and demand situation is at that time. All right, what else do I want to tell you about gold and silver? Um how much should you buy? That's always a question I get from people. How much should you buy? <sighs> Not as much as I bought, I'll tell you that, as a percent of my net worth. Uh, I would never recommend clients have the same percentage of their net worth in gold and silver that I do. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because I want you to know my conviction. I work too hard in my life to build my wealth. I am not going to have it disappear overnight through hyperinflation due to the actions of the central bank uh, and the actions of the United States Congress in spending money we don't have. And it's inevitable that the dollar is going to collapse with the de-dollarization that's going on, with the BRICS countries coming together. It was announced just this week at the, what is it called, DOPA Climate uh, gathering in, uh, what was it, Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Uh, and they announced that they're going to start trading oil and other than U.S. dollars. Joining Saudi Arabia, you know, Saudi Arabia is still using dollars quite a bit, but they're also accepting yuan. So the petrodollar is dying. And uh, the only reason why the dollar hasn't crashed already is because of the reserve status of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, which is being chipped away at every day. And when that's chipped away enough, it's going to come crashing down. And you're going to have interest rates spike to levels you never thought possible. And you're going to see gold and silver go to the moon. Now, is it really going up? No, no, it's just preserving the value and purchasing power that it, it's always had. And that's the thing about gold and silver. Nobody gets rich with it. All they do is they don't get poor with it. And that's the thing. You have $100,000 in a bank and you have hyperinflation and a currency collapse, <laughs> you lose a good portion of that purchasing power, what you can buy with it. On the other hand, if you had uh, 100000 in gold and that happened, your gold would rise so much that you'd be able to buy the same amount of goods and services that you could have bought before that hyperinflation kicked in. And that's why I always called gold and silver a financial insurance policy. That if all hell breaks loose uh, and the worst happens, 
you will be okay because you have the financial insurance policy of precious metals in your life. Now, again, back to how much should you buy? Depends on your tolerance for risk because the one thing that is assured of owning gold and silver is volatile. It's manipulated, as I said earlier. So uh, it's a fight sometimes. But if you don't have to sell it and you just buy it and you're putting it away as an insurance policy for the future, uh, then it doesn't matter the price of gold and silver and the volatility of it until the day you sell. And uh, I never sell mine. I don't care how high it goes or how low it goes. I don't sell it. Why would I sell it? Why would I sell my financial life insurance? I don't want to do that. I don't want to sell my my life insurance, my real life insurance, because I'm feeling a little good this year. Uh, of course not. But I don't want to sell my financial life insurance because it went up 20%. Now, you could trade gold and silver, and a lot of people do using the ETFs. That's fine. But your core, core holdings should never be sold, unless you absolutely have to. How much should you have of gold and silver in your life? Um, most financial planners will say... Um, Five to fifteen percent, depending on your wealth, how much wealth you do have. If you have a lot of money, uh, I would put a higher percent in gold and silver. If you don't, then obviously you want to put a smaller percent in because you need liquid assets outside of that. So I would say five percent would be the minimum of your portfolio, your savings, your investments outside of your home, and uh, as much as fifteen percent. Um, and, and many uh, people have a lot more than that uh, as a percent of their net worth because they're fearful of what's going to happen to the future of the U.S. dollar. And, and I'm one of them. So gold and silver is God's money. 700 times mentioned in the Bible. Uh, and uh, it should be your money as well. And it should be a part of your life. One of the paperwork burdens following a death of a family member um, was lifted last week uh, when uh, Governor Phil Murphy signed legislation to allow a surviving spouse or family member to drive their loved one's car longer. Under the new law, uh, widows, widowers, and relatives can drive their loved one's vehicle until the registration expires. Previously, the surviving relatives had to change the vehicle's registration within 30 days or face fines. And the bill unanimously passed the state Senate and Assembly earlier this year and was signed by uh, Governor Phil Murphy on November 20th. So that's a good thing. I mean, who could be uh, against that? It's rare in New Jersey that you have the state Senate have a unanimous vote. Uh, But why would you be against that? It makes, makes all the sense in the world. That, you know, 30 days, guy, you're still grieving and burying your, your loved one. You have to run to motor vehicles and deal with that. And now uh, you don't have to change uh, the registration of the title uh, until the registration expires. And that, that's a good thing. So I wanted to bring that to your attention. All right, let's shift gears a bit. Let's talk about the border. Uh, it's getting worse and worse down there. Uh, and, of course, Biden's blaming Republicans. Uh, Republicans want, uh, if they're going to vote for aid for Ukraine and Israel, they want tougher border laws uh, in that bill uh, and more money for the border. And Biden says, well, we have more money for the border there. 
that money is to help process the illegals coming in and give them all free stuff. Now, this just came out. This this will burn you. This, this is really going to make your blood boil. Uh, Penal County, Arizona Sheriff Mark Lamb, he released a video on Tuesday, and he alleges that illegal border crosses are given all kinds of stuff, including $5,000. You won't believe this. Hey, folks, Sheriff Lamb here. So I got a truth bomb for you. You know, we see all these people coming across, mostly military-age men coming from China, from Africa, from all over the world. Um, most of them not even being vetted when they come in here. But here's what's really going to bother you. When these folks come across and they're processed, they are being given a cell phone, a plane ticket to wherever they want to go in this country, so probably to a community near you, and a $5,000 visa card. So while this Christmas season you're struggling to keep your lights on, uh, while you're struggling to pay your rent, put Christmas presents under the tree for your kids, we have our government giving people that came into this country illegally $5,000 gift cards. That's the truth, folks. God bless. Wow. Doesn't that piss you off? It makes me insane. It is insane. I was listening to last week's program. I can't believe how many times, especially in the second hour, I used the word, it's insane or insanity. We live in an insane world right now. Right? Americans are struggling so bad right now. 67% are going paycheck to paycheck. And when someone comes across illegally, and we have 12000 a day coming across now, they get a free cell phone and probably service is free too. A $5,000 gift card, a Visa card that they could spend on anything, and a free plane ticket to a neighborhood near you. No wonder why 12000 a day are coming across. I'm surprised it's not 100000 They win a lotto when they enter America. The House Committee on Homeland Security released a report last week on the massive cost illegal aliens have on the country. What do you, how much do you think it costs a year? According to the committee, the so-called asylum seekers, they're money seekers, they're opportunity seekers, those who enter the United States illegally are costing the government, get this, $451 billion a year. Almost a half a trillion dollars. This is ridiculous. I mean, $451 billion. You know, we throw these numbers around all the time, and I try to put it in context for you what these numbers mean. And I think this will clear it up for you, all right? If you count it to a million, it would take you 12 days, 24 hours a day. If you count it to a billion, it would take 12,000 days. If you count it to a trillion, it would take 32,000 years. That's what a trillion dollars is. Now we have 33 trillion in debt. So you'd have to, you'd have to count one at a time, one second at a time, a dollar for 32,000 years times 33. That's how insane these numbers are. And here we are, given $451 billion a year towards these illegals. I tell you, January 20th, 2025 cannot come fast enough. It really can't. Now, Trump uh, was on a Hannity for a town hall. 
Now, the mainstream media now uh, has uh, uh, the fraudulent mainstream, corrupt media, anti-Trump, trying to take him down every which way they can since the beginning. Uh, now has this new thing that Trump, if he becomes president, he's going to be a dictator. Yeah, he's going to be a dictator. He's going to do to us what we did to him. <laughs> Retribution, you can't do that. Uh, so Hannity asked him if he was going to be a dictator, and he went on and said, yeah, on day one. I'm going to close the border, and I'm going to drill, 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 and that's going to be my dictation for the first day, and that'll be it. I won't be a di- dictator anymore. Here's the clip. The media has been focused on this and attacking you yeah. under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except for? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. Now, of course, the corrupt mainstream media ran with that. Trump said he'd be a dictator. Trump said he'd be a dictator. Obviously, it was tongue-in-cheek. And closing the border and resuming drilling is what he's done in the past through executive order. That's what he meant. But of course, and they know it too. And the Biden campaign came out and said, Trump said he will be a dictator if reelected. That was their interpretation of that. And of course, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and oh, Trump's a me. This, this is the, the narrative now. Right? They know they can't beat him, so they're just trying to scare everybody into being afraid that he's going to be a dictator. You know who's afraid? They're all afraid because they know, and rightfully so, that Trump is going to go after all of these who abuse their power. The FBI has got to be cleaned out. Uh, we have to resume our energy uh, independence. We have to close the border. I was just telling you, $5,000 a person coming across. God, uh, you know, you struggling out there? Go to Mexico and come through the border again and get a $5,000 gift card and a free cell phone. And a plane ticket anywhere in the United States. Go on vacation somewhere. It's just unbelievable. It's outrageous. Uh, and rightfully so. That's why Trump is going to be reelected. We keep seeing these pictures of tens of thousands of people coming across the border. Uh, and if this information comes out that they're getting five thousand uh, uh, dollars, Trump's going to win by a landslide, even even more so, because this bothers almost everybody except Democrats. And I don't understand how the Democrats aren't freaked out that our country's being invaded. Well, they're not because they believe these are Democratic voters that are going to make the difference. And that for next year, they're going to illegally sign them up for voter registration and no ID and all that stuff. Uh, and they believe that they could steal the election again. It doesn't matter how bad the country is affected by it. It doesn't matter that we're paying $451 billion a year for these illegals. The Democrats really have become the party of anti-Americanism. And Americans know that. And the Democrats are in big trouble next year. I think the Republicans win the House, the Senate, and the presidency, even in the face of massive voter fraud that we're going to be dealing with. And if that doesn't happen, well, democracy's done in the United States. And the will of the people is over. Anyway, this gets me so angry. I, I lose it a little bit when it comes to this immigration thing. Every time I see, on, and you only see it on Fox News, you just see them walking across 
thousands of them in one day, nonstop. Did you see the, the smuggler pose for the camera on the other side of the fence with a smug look on his face, waves to everybody, and nothing's done about it? It makes me insane because it is insane. It makes me crazy. And you know what? It's going to make mo- the major majority of Americans crazy. And that's why the Republicans are going to win in 2024. I don't care how much they cheat. You want to see more insanity at the border? Mobs of illegal aliens consisting primarily of Chinese males um, fighting age crossing the border to gigantic lines of these Chinese, where are they coming from? Um, and uh, why are they coming? They're not coming to work at your local dry cleaner or Chinese restaurant. They're infiltrating. It's, this is a, an invasion. Who knows how many of them are spies? How many of them are, are, are going to rise up against America at the right time? And, uh, and we're just letting it happen. We're not letting it happen. Biden's letting it happen or whoever's got his hand up his back. Maybe they're just sabotage teams coming in here to sabotage our, our electric system, our transportation system. Who knows what they're here for? And how did they get here from China? They don't just walk from China to, the United, uh, to, to Mexico and into the United States. More than 24,300 Chinese nationals were apprehended at the southwest border during fiscal year 2023. Uh, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And why now? But, again... There's nothing, uh, nothing Biden wants to do about it. And, uh, and thankfully, Republicans didn't push through this aid for Ukraine and Israel if there's not going to be border security. And, and, and Biden comes out and says that uh, the Republicans want extreme measures. Extreme measures to stop the flow, enforce our laws. That, that's all they're asking for. But Biden doesn't want to do it because he's purposely trying to destroy the country or whoever is the puppet master. So listen to Biden uh, talk about the Republicans, their extreme demands on the border. And he's willing to compromise and negotiate. Uh, Negotiate what? Just enforce our border laws. Extreme Republicans are playing chicken with our national security. Holding Ukraine's funding hostages are extreme partisan border policies. Republicans have to decide if they want a political issue, if they want a solution at the border. And my team has been engaged in negotiations with with Senate Democrats and Republicans on border security. This has to be a negotiation. Republicans think they get everything they want without any bipartisan compromise. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. And now they're willing to literally kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield and damage our national security in the process. <clears throat> so I'm calling on Congress to do something and do the right thing, to stand with the people of Ukraine, stand against the tyranny of Putin, stand for freedom, literally stand for freedom. Like I said, I am willing to make significant compromises on the border. We need to fix the broken border system. It is broken. 
Yeah, you broke it, Biden. It was fine when Trump was president. The first thing you did on day one was stop all this border stuff, the security that we had there. And he wants to negotiate. There's nothing to negotiate. Close the border like every other country. But he, you know, it's the, it's the Republicans that are putting our national security at risk. How about you letting in, what, 23,000 Chinese men? Who, who's, who's, who's destroying our national security? It's unbelievable, this guy. And I'm glad, thankfully, the Republicans kept it from uh, closure uh, in the Senate, and it's not being voted on. And the Republicans want a secure border. Uh, and I, you know, from a political standpoint, you'd think Biden would start moving that way because this, this is a loser for him. He could lose the election on the border alone, but he's not. He's going to lose it on inflation, the economy, and uh, uh, the declining standard of living of Americans, uh, our foreign policy disasters, his inability to complete a sentence or walk off a stage. Um, it's really, really uh, quite disturbing, to say the least. And I, I feel it's treasonous. Now, uh, Trump obviously is the front runner. They had uh, the fourth Republican debate. What a waste of time. Trump hasn't been at any of them. Smart move on his part. You can't really bash a, a, an empty podium. It's kind of tough to do. Fat pig Chris Christie tries every time he's there. What a jerk. I'm surprised he even has 1% of the polling. Why is he there? He's there for one reason only, to try to sully up Trump. But it doesn't work. And all these other people are wasting their time. Trump is so far ahead of them all. I don't even know why they bother. Whoever's giving them money, I don't know why they're dumping money down a black hole. And they're all going to start falling off now. Because it gets to a point when you start getting into the election year that you really need funds to work. And they're not getting it because they have no chance. You know, donors don't want to give money to somebody that has no chance. Unless Trump drops dead or is killed, which is, uh, you know, that's the new meme. You know, everybody talks about eliminating Trump. Uh, then maybe that's what they're, they're angling for. Either he's in jail or he's... Uh, um, or he's uh, somewhere else in the universe than the Earth. Uh, maybe that's the plan. Who knows? Anyway, President Trump continues to dominate the 2024 GOP field and and um, all the primaries. So now attention's been turned to who is he going to pick as a running mate this time? Well, I don't think it's going to be Mike Pence, to be quite honest with you. Now, uh, a list of names came out. Uh, Axios published a, an extensive piece this week detailing uh, the potential makeup of, of a Trump cabinet in the second term and who uh, would be his vice president. And there's some interesting picks here, and uh, some of them I really like, actually. Uh, according to Axios, here are the four individuals under the most serious discussion by Trump and most trusted advisors. Senator J.D. Vance from Ohio, the Republican senator who won uh, just two years ago. Axios notes that he may want to remain in the Senate. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who served as White House Press Secretary for Trump. I like her a lot. I think she'd be a great pick. Um, former TV anchor and current 2024 Arizona GOP Senate candidate, uh, Carrie Lake, 
who had her election stolen from her. You want to talk about an obvious steal? Uh, Arizona. Um, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome. I like her. I like her a lot. I think you should pick a woman. I really do. Uh, I think that would help a lot. Now, in an interesting twist, uh, First Lady Melania Trump is pushing for her husband to select uh, Fox News host Tucker Carlson, um, ex-Fox News host and now Twitter star. And she said she'd be re, uh, she would reportedly be willing to campaign cross-country for that ticket. It's really interesting. She likes, she likes Carson a lot. She thinks Carlson uh, would make a powerful onstage extension of her husband. A source close to Trump told us. The former first lady has made few campaign appearances this time, but a Trump-Carlson ticket might encourage her to hit the trail. And obviously Trump likes Tucker a lot. He says he's got great common sense. We want to have safe borders. We want to have a wall because walls work. Um, imagine that. Tucker calls it. Uh, boy, they tried to destroy Tucker already. Imagine him as his vice presidential candidate. And that would be an interesting ticket. Um, but it's certainly not going to be any of these uh, Republican challengers at this debate. One thing about Trump, you have to understand, loyalty is very important to him. And I guess loyalty should be important to everybody. And um, so uh, none of those, uh, none of those four on the stage, especially Chris Christie. I don't think he's going to be uh, Trump's running mate. All right. On the other side of the break, Hunter Biden is uh, indicted on many tax charges. Uh, we'll talk about the curiosity of the timing of this announcement. And we'll talk about universities in America, this uh, anti-Israeli, pro-Palestine thing that's come out has exposed American universities as the root cause of all that is wrong in America right now. Don't go away. AFM Investments' Luce Katigna has been serving Ocean County for over 35 years. AFM Investments brings a level of expertise, knowledge, and experience to the Jersey Shore that you would typically have to pursue with a premier investment firm on Wall Street. Whether you need income tax preparation or financial planning, he has the experience to help you with whatever your needs are. For more information, log on to AFMinvestments.net. Registered Investment Advisory Services through Fortitude Advisory Group. Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless, market train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did.
All right, time for the home stretch of this week's Financial Physician Podcast. I'm Lou Skatigna, Certified Financial Planner. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for sharing the podcast with friends and family. And love your emails, Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Now, on the same day that House Republicans formalized their impeachment inquiry of President Biden, the special counsel, special counsel investigating Hunter Biden charged him late Thursday on nine counts stemming from his failure to pay federal taxes on millions in income from his foreign businesses. Now, you may think that this is, wow, finally, the guy's going to get indicted. Well, I'll tell you why the timing is uh, incredibly um, interesting. Uh, now what he's going to do, next week on the 13th, Hunter Biden has been subpoenaed to appear, appear before, um, I guess it's the Oversight Committee, or one of the committees, I forgot which one it was, uh, Comer's Committee. And he's supposed to give uh, testimony under oath, a deposition, in private, not a public forum, and bet on it. He's not going to show up because he's going to say, now that I've been charged with crimes, I can't jeopardize the case by bringing testimony forth in the committee. Mark my words on this. This is exactly the way it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, it may happen. It may have happened already. I'm recording this on, uh, on Friday morning. So by Sunday morning, it may have already happened. You may have already heard that. So, and, and you know, they're saying he could spend 17 years in jail for this. He's not going to spend one day in jail. His father's going to pardon him if he has to. But this is one way to uh, keep him from testifying under oath about everything that him and Joe have done over the years, which is the most corrupt president we've ever seen, influence peddling at this level. I mean, it is, it is corruption 101 at the highest level. Now, the indictment, uh, I read most of it, uh, is pretty detailed. And it discuss, uh, discusses Hunter's business entities that he used the millions he received from foreign countries and foreign nationals and foreign businesses like China, Romania, Ukraine. And, uh, and it lists a lot of the expenses he took when he did file taxes, uh, including deducting all kinds of money for uh, prostitutes and everything else. He had $1,664,000 in ATM cash withdrawals. Can you imagine that? <laughs> how do you take that much money out of an ATM? I don't know over how much time this was. Uh, that's quite a bit of money. Spent 683000 in payments to, quote, unquote, various women. I guess that's a new euphemism for hookers or prostitutes. Uh, and 189000 on adult entertainment. I guess that's different than various women. Uh Quite amazing uh, that they've detailed this. It's, uh, it's an interesting read. Uh, and one or two things are happening here. This is so he won't testify, trying to cover up, not for him, for Joe. That can't come out. Or they're throwing Biden under the bus and they don't really care now. Just throw the book at Hunter and, you know. Uh, let's move on to Newsom, because we know Joe can't win. You don't think they know that? 
by now with his popularity numbers. They can't cheat enough now. They're losing a black vote. They're losing a Hispanic vote. So he can't be the nominee. And they know that the guy is bonkers now. Imagine what he's going to be like a year from now or sometime in the summer when he's just going to get worse. Is he going to be able to get through a convention speech accepting the nomination? So that's what this is all about. It's one of the two. Either they're covering up for Joe, knowing that, that, that Hunter's not going to uh, testify now. Or they're throwing, they're throwing Joe under the bus and Hunter under the bus and going to move on. Only time will tell. We'll see. On October 7th, uh, 1,200 uh, Jewish people were raped, killed, mutilated in the most heinous way possible. People who've seen some of these videos just can't believe the level of depravity and evil that they saw. And since then, we've come to realize that America's universities are incredibly anti-Semitic. It must have been just right under the surface because it's out there now. And universities have been exposed as the left-wing radicals that they are. And it's infuriating most people in the country. I would say 90%. And uh, when I thought about it, you know, universities, especially the Ivy League universities, uh, they're the root cause of everything that's crazy in our life right now. They are so rabidly left. They've been infiltrated by the Marxists. And this week on Capitol Hill, the presidents of three Ivy League universities, University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, I forgot what the third one was, were on Capitol Hill. And based on their testimony and their answers to questions that Republicans asked them, by the way, uh, there's no doubt in anybody's mind how rabidly anti-Israel and left-wing these people are. Now, one of the um, toughest questioners, she was great, uh, uh, Stefanik, Helene Stefanik, uh, Republican uh, congresswoman from New York. Uh, she asked, uh, I think it was the University of Pennsylvania president, if it's okay to call for the genocide of Jews. Is that, is that accepted speech on her campus? And she couldn't even answer the question definitively. She said, well, it depends on the context. Is there any context where genocide is warranted on, on, on any race? Uh, listen to this. You won't believe it. Gail, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. 
So is your testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. That's what we're dealing with now. Uh, this is the head of University of Pennsylvania. Could not definitively say that calling for the genocide of Jewish people uh, is not harassment. Uh, these people are, are nuts. And they've infiltrated all parts of our, you know, this is where teachers get trained. This is where lawyers go. This is, this is where um, all aspects of society come through these universities. And you wonder why we have this crazy, woke, crazy culture that we're living in right now. And it all comes from the universities. And if you watch that hearing and you heard what the other one said, here, here's a Harvard uh, president. Her name is Gay. All right. Uh, and uh, she's the one who um, didn't want to uh, condemn uh, the Palestinian anti-Israeli demonstrations on campus and the risk to uh, the Jewish students there. And then she says that she's all inclusive and for free speech. Now, Stefanik let her have it after that. Take a listen. We embrace a commitment to free expression and give a wide berth to free expression, even of views that are objectionable. You and I both know that's not the case. You were aware that Harvard ranked dead last when it came to free speech. Are you not aware of that report? As I observed earlier, I reject that characterization. It's the data shows it's true. So Harvard's ranked dead last of all colleges for free speech. And she'll come right out and just lie to your face. We believe in all, all views should be included. Uh, try to be a conservative speaker on campus. I wonder if I wanted to do a, um, a presentation or a speaking engagement, what would happen? Uh, I'd have to spend a lot of money on security. Now, I'm not Jewish, but if I was Jewish, I'd really have to spend a lot of money on security. But I'm telling you, this is where it's coming from. It's coming from the universities. Now, uh, a college professor put out a, 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 an article in the Wall Street Journal this past Monday, I think it was. And he was spot on, absolutely spot on. And, and, and this is the headline. Higher education has become a threat to America. John Ellis is a professor emeritus at uh, German literature at University UC Santa Cruz. University of California at Santa Cruz. In a column for the Wall Street Journal, Ellis declares that higher education has become a threat, and he's right. Ellis contends that our college campuses have been taken over by radical left-wing ideologues obsessed with social justice and other progressive political concepts, and that actual education has suffered as a result. And he suggests that the problem will get worse unless more Americans wake up and see this threat for what it is and demand that Congress cut funding and that schools send radicals packing. Uh, I could read this whole article to, to you. It's so good. I highly recommend that you seek it out. 
uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, Professor John Ellis. Uh, everybody's talking about it, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. And, and this is the way he starts it. He says, America faces a formidable range of calamities, crime out of control, borders in chaos by design, children poorly educated, why sexualized and politicized against parental opposition, unconstitutional censorship, a press that does government PR rather than oversight, our institutions and corporations debased in the name of, quote, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and more. And then add to this, an outbreak of virulent anti-Semitism. Every one of these degradations can be traced wholly or in large part to a single source, the corruption of higher education by radical political activists. Children's test scores have plummeted because college education departments train teachers to prioritize, prioritize social justice over education. Censorship started with one-party campuses shutting down conservative voices. The coddling of, uh, coddling of criminals originated with academia's devotion to Michael Foucault's idea that criminals are victims, not victimizers. So he goes on and on. He says, never have college campuses exerted so great or so destructive an influence. Once an indispensable support of our advanced society, academia has become a cancer metastasizing through its vital organs. Anyway, the, the way he says this could be stopped is cutting off the money. That states have to start cutting off the money unless uh, these people are replaced, that administer these schools, and that um, censorship is done away with and uh, free speech is allowed on campus. It would only happen in uh, red states anyway. But he's absolutely right, spot on in everything he says. Who does he sound like? I've been saying this on this show for so long that universities are so radicalized uh, and infiltrated by Marxists, leftists, uh, and they're indoctrinating our children, and then they're going out into society and all different industries, um, from the legal profession to the medical profession to the education of our children, and they're spewing their left-wing radical views. And it's a big danger to society. Now, this guy is a professor emeritus in the University of California. Uh, I wonder what kind of backlash he's going to get for this article. I think he's retired, though, so he doesn't have to worry about it. He'll still get, he'll still get backlash. Um, but it was very brave of him to come out and say this. Um, and uh, I'm glad that the Wall Street Journal gave him a platform to do so. And that's the thing. You know, I said, you know, we've been telling you for years how radicalized the schools have become. And, and now with this uh, Israeli uh, war, now it's, the veil's been pulled away. We could all see it. Not only the anti-Semitism, but just the radical leftist thinking. The censorship. Uh, the um, the uh, making it equivocal what's happening to the Palestinians, to what the Hamas did to these poor people. Uh, and uh, will there be any changes? I don't know. But uh, like this guy says, um, universities in America are the biggest threat. Could you imagine if um, they were um, talking about the genocide of Hispanics or gays or Muslims Uh or blacks, or heaven forbid, transgender, 
oh boy, they'd have a different take on it then, wouldn't they? Why is it okay if it's Jews? That's the thing. Even if it was animals, I mean, people would be outraged. But this woman has to depend on the context on whether or not this is the wrong thing to say or think or let alone do. You know, if action is taken, well, well, so you have to actually commit the genocide for it to be a problem for you. This is how bad it is in American universities. That's the way it is. And she doesn't see the problem with it. That's the thing with these crazy radical leftists. They don't see anything wrong with it. Something wrong with you if you don't agree with that. It's just unbelievable. So in response to um, uh, the president of UPenn, uh, Liz McGill's anti-Semitic uh, remarks when she said that genocide's okay, you have to put it into context, um, uh, one of the big donors came out and said they were drawing a $100 million donation. On Thursday, Ross Stevens, CEO of Stone Ridge Asset Management, sent a letter to University of Pennsylvania announcing the withdrawal of a substantial $100 million donation. This move comes in response to President Liz McGill's recent anti-Semitic comments before Congress. And that's the way you do it. That's what these people know is money. And many of the donors to these these Ivy League colleges, I forgot where I heard it on the internet. I think it was Dan Bongino. I don't know if he coined the term, the Poison Ivy League. That's what it's become. And, uh, and, and many of these donors are Jewish in all these colleges and universities. Don't they realize who they're offending? Um, but they don't seem to care. It's all about ideology to them. Well, now they're paying the price. Good move on um, Stone Asset Management, Stone Ridge. Good for them. FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, was in front of, I think it was the House Oversight Committee, uh, who were grilling him on the FBI and the cover-up of the Hunter Biden laptop and, and everything. And this guy's really slick. I mean, he never answers the question straight hand, or if he answers it, he just lies to you and says that we're impartial, blah, 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 blah. So uh, Senator Kennedy, uh, who I like to have on this show every week, he's just funny as hell. He's not funny in this one, though. Uh But he asked him, he says, look, when that letter came out from the 51 intelligence people, including past CIA heads, um, that the laptop was Russian disinformation, why didn't you come out and clear that up? Because they had the laptop for, what, two years, the FBI? They knew it was real. Now, maybe they couldn't vouch for everything that was on it, but they knew it was Hunter Biden's laptop. And why wouldn't you come out? And clarify that so, you know, just prior to election, this came out. Um, And they were trying to cover it up. And these 51 intelligence people purposely and knowingly lied to mislead the public. And social media was was lending a hand with that, too. Censoring uh, the New York Post and any other uh, posting on social media was censored regarding the laptop. 
but he always answers the question really snidely and coolly. Uh, listen to the back and forth between uh, Senator Kennedy and um, Christopher Wright. We had a we, we had a controversy during the election about Mr. Hunter Biden's, Biden's laptop, and at that time you had eighty agents interfacing with social media, doing whatever they were meeting, doing. Um, the FBI had the Hunter Biden laptop on, got it on December 9th, 2019. The, the New York Post story, which, which a lot of the social media companies at the, at the suggestion of government took down, the story came out on 10-14, 2020. Why didn't the FBI just say, hey, the, 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 the laptop's real? Why didn't you just tell everybody the laptop's real? We're not vouching for what's on it, but it's real. This isn't a, 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 a fiction. Well, I, I, as you might imagine, the FBI cannot, especially in a time like that, be talking about an ongoing investigation. Second, I would tell you that at least my understanding is that both the FBI folks involved in the conversations and the Twitter folks involved in the conversations both say that the FBI did not direct Twitter to uh, suppress. But others were story. in government. Well, I can't, again, I can't speak to others in government. Now, that's part of the point that I was trying to make because the Fifth yes, Circuit's But opinion, you're the FBI. You're not part of the White House and part of Homeland Security. You're not supposed to be political. You see all this controversy going on. Why didn't the FBI say, time out, folks. We're not getting in the middle of this, but the laptop's real. Again, we have to be very careful about what we can say, especially in the middle of uh, an election season because that's precisely some of the problems that led to my predecessor's uh, uh, negative findings from the inspector general. Did you hear a gavel? Thank you, Senator I heard Kennedy. A gavel. Thank you, Senator. So that's what they always say. I can't comment on an ongoing invest- investigation. Well, how long is this investigation going on? They've had the laptop since 2019. I've seen everything on a laptop. It's available on the internet. The evidence of crimes from drug abuse to prostitution uh, to bribery. It's all there. They have it. What are they investigating? And that conveniently means I can't speak about it. But, you know, he says, well, it was so close to an election. Uh, Well, of course you you don't want it out. Uh, These people are despicable. They really are. He could have came out and just said, yeah, it's real. You know, we don't vouch for anything that's on it yet, but, you know, it's definitely his laptop. Wouldn't even do that because it would have harmed Joe Biden's campaign. Uh, But meanwhile, uh, the FBI is happy to leak a few days before the election that Trump's being investigated for ties to Russia. That's the way it works. Anonymous leak out of the FBI. And it's on the front page of the New York Times. Three days before the election. That's okay. That's not election interference. And it wasn't even true. That's the thing. The laptop is true. That's the thing is these people get away with the actual crimes. And Trump has 91 indictments. It's insane. There's a word again. Insane. Senator Ted Cruz had some uh, more questioning for Christopher Ray regarding the 
the two-tiered justice system that we're dealing with right now. Take a listen. Is the FBI, do they make a routine practice of allowing partisan political optics to prevent investigating serious evidence of corruption? My instructions to our people on this and on every other investigation are that we are to follow the facts wherever they lead, no matter who likes it, no matter what political influence and why did may you be get out the there. GPS data on where Hunter Biden and Joe Biden were? Again, Senator, with respect, I can't discuss but, but it's an not ongoing with respect. investigation. And, and Director Ray, you and I have gone round and round on this, because I understand. Anytime you're asked about this, the answer is it's an ongoing investigation. Of course, the investigation isn't ongoing. You're not doing the work. you got whistleblowers pointing out that you're not doing the work. And you are hiding behind the skirts of the attorney general. All right. I've had enough for today. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us for this week's The Financial Physician Podcast. Please share uh, the link to the show with friends and family. If you want to get in touch with me, just send me an email, lou at thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. And if you want to set up a no-obligation financial consultation with me in my Tom Driver office or you want to have a phone meeting, Uh, Just call my office at 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Have a great week and join me next week for the next edition of the Financial Physician Podcast. And just never forget, I'm not far right. I'm just right so far.